He was an Estonian icon, a Greco-Roman legend, a hero to his people, and utterly full of shit. It's the story of Georg Lurich. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swords. Pearl wrestling history nerds. OMG, you did it. You hit the button. You downloaded it. Maybe you're just listening off of Wi-Fi. Maybe you are just being fucking wild and you are just using up your data, listening to us talk, which is insane, but that's your phone bill, not mine. I can't judge. What the hell am I talking about? Who the hell am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, sometimes a ring announcer, used to be a referee. Uh, I am a, a, a recovering COVID patient, so if my, uh, my throat, my voice sounds a little different this week, that is why. And I am here with the GoBots to the G.I. Joe knockoff action force action figures. You know, we are not the best, but we're the best your mom can do. And I think you know what I mean by that. And yes, I am here with Chongo Bronson, my eternal partner. How the hell are you, man? Capital, because you just took me back to when I was a young Chongito watching the USA Network after school. GoBots were over with me, man. You know, they were very underrated. You know, don't hate on the GoBots. GoBots, go. Hey, everybody needs, uh, what was that, uh, Cyclo or whatever the hell he was called. You know, they were cheaper. They were not as good. But who gives a shit when you're a kid? But you know what? When we do give a shit, we do give a shit now as adults. When we are doing this show, Pro Wrestling History Nerds, when we are doing these deep dives into the history of professional wrestling, in the last two episodes, we, we kind of came a little bit into the modern times. We talked about wrestlers that can fight, wrestlers who can't fight, but now we're going back, 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 back to start looking at a man named George Lurich. It's Georg Lurich, but uh, in America, in England, it was always going to be George. I may switch back and forth. I am sorry to the ghost of the man and any Estonians who may be listening, but what are you going to do? Complain? Probably, but just do it to your friends, not online. That's all I can ask. And like always, I want to remind you that we do the best we can with the information we can find. Sometimes we find weird information that is not necessarily true. I try to present that as such. Sometimes I, I, I miss entirely cool things that somebody else one time discovered and wants to point out where I failed but we do the best we can with the resources available trying to research pro wrestling from the late 1800s, from the early 1900s, when there weren't shoot interviews. There was no exposing the business uh, for the most part with uh, autobiographies and things like that that came later. So it's an oral tradition. It is trying to interpret the sports pages of the New York Times and Brooklyn Eagle. We're doing our darndest. I think we're doing a pretty good job and I hope you agree that we are. And you're welcome to start your own pro wrestling history podcast and do a better job than us. Oh yes, that's what I thought. Yes, Chongo digresses. We are crossing over the membrane of the macro into the micro minutia of the history of the bedrock of professional wrestling, man. And there's nothing cooler, nerdier, or more, you know, fascinating, frankly, than the history of professional wrestling. And this one ended up being way more interesting than I thought it possibly could be. This is one of those guys, Georg Lurich, George Lurich. You may remember that name from the 
George or Georg Hackenschmidt episode where he was the guy who handed Hackenschmidt his first loss even though Hackenschmidt was not really a trained wrestler he was just an athletic natural freak of a, a human being and then Lurich kind of bragged about it and ducked rematches and used that as a, a leverage for star power essentially for the rest of his life which I found to be a hilariously awesome move I, I loved it and I was interested. I tried to look up and see what I could find on this guy, see if there was anything more than the basics you would find on his Wikipedia page, and holy shit did this unfurl into one of the craziest goddamn stories I have ever put together. And that is really mean something because this whole goddamn business is full of crazy stories. Yes, one thing I have come to realize, old chap, is that the more obscure and sort of side charactery the person we are covering that day is the crazier shit this guy got away with because man you've literally solved murders and we've we've re 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 reworked the gigax code and all this stuff because you have dug so deep and i just cannot wait to hear the stuff you've uncovered old it, it reminded me a lot of the uh the Theobode Bauer story, where that was another guy who was in the, the background. There wasn't a lot online. I, I had to really dig deep into the, the newspaper uh, archive at the Library of Congress, and it ends up this guy had a crazier story than all of his superstar contemporaries, and that was the same situation with Lurich. He's a guy where if everything were true, or you at least took it at face value, you could make a movie of this guy's life story. And there, are, there is a movie about him. Uh, it's Estonian. I, I wasn't able to, uh, to find it, unfortunately. Um, but it, you would watch this movie. You would hear this, this story told and go, that happened to one guy. Bullshit. That's too fucking crazy. And by the end of the episode, you'll know what we're talking about. So we're getting into the life of Georg Lurich, who was born April 22nd or April 10th, according to the Gregorian calendar. And because this is back in the day where different parts of the world still operated off of different calendars. And this is in 1876 in Vika. Marja in Viru County, Russian Empire, which is now Lana Viru County, Estonia. And I apologize so much for the mispronunciation on that. I couldn't find a uh, like a YouTube video saying it out loud. I did the best I could trying to uh, uh, pronounce it, but that's where he was from. That is when he was born. And he was the son of a shopkeeper named Jury Lurie, who changed his name to Lurich after changing his religious following from an Estonian Lutheran congregation to a Baltic German one. He wanted his son to have a German sounding name to increase the educational and economic opportunities in his future, because this is a time where you know the German empire was kind of starting to come together. All of the German states were kind of starting to come together and being German had a lot more prestige in Europe overall than being an Estonian Russian. Yes, we're talking pre World War One, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, absolutely. This yeah. is yeah. This is the the late 1800s in America. It was the time of Strangler Lewis. It was the time of William Muldoon. But on the continent, over on uh, you know the the you know deep into the uh, you know the, the central and eastern European part of the world. 
it was a much different place than it is today or than it even was after World War One, when all these empires collapsed. It was almost like a hangover from the Middle Ages in some ways. Different time, different world, different place, different level of national identity. However, name change or not, the Baltic German kids at his school bullied the hell out of him, which is what led him to learning to wrestle and develop his body with exercise and sports. It's very much the you know the the typical karate story from the 80s or the oh. boxing story or whatever, where the bullied kid finally decides to learn a combat sport to stand up to the bullies, and that's exactly what he did. I would love to know how much he resented his uh, parents for changing his name and dropping him into essentially another culture for his elementary school and education, where these kids go, you might have changed your name, but we know an Estonian when we see one. Nerd. Yeah, you know, we have a classic boy named Sue scenario here where, you know, the toughness of your circumstance and your namesake and where you're from and your background, you know, puts you in the crosshairs of all the, you know, people who are from wherever you move to. And yeah, we got a full karate kid thing, but that's, you know, when you get older, this, we wouldn't be talking about this man today if he didn't go through those things early on because those put him on the path to become the fighter and the wrestler that he became. In any great man's life, and I will call this guy a great man even though he's very obscure, because in, in America anyway and anywhere other than Estonia, and because you only become as legendary as the obstacles you overcome. Yes. And that's as true in real life as it is in pro wrestling even today. You're only as tough and as legendary as the people you beat on your way to the top. And this guy had plenty of uh, obstacles as a child. It was probably very hurtful, but he was determined. He was angry and he grew big, strong and tough. The tough, at least because of it, I can't say you grow bigger because you're a put-upon bullied kid. I know I did, but causality doesn't really back that up. And at this time, sporting and physical culture had become a big deal in Estonia. As German-influenced gymnasiums, clubs, and training curriculum gave fledgling athletes structure and coaching, because we did have that 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 uh, those German-style gymnasiums where it was finally not yeah. just somebody being a circus strongman. It was an athletic club where you came and you cycled as a group and you lifted as a group, and it was peer-reviewed and you you had people to work out with, and it was more structured than just being farm strong from chopping wood or being circus strong from uh, you know lifting uh, you know weird sized things over your head to impress the marks at the carnival. Yeah, if it, it would be almost like if a hipster started CrossFit nowadays. The combination of exercises you get in one of these places cuz you're doing, you know, aerial acrobatics, you're doing juggling, you're doing unicycling, you're doing uh, strength training, you're doing cardiovascular work, and it's really just kind of a, a physical culture hodgepodge. But it made for some really cool uh, stories to come out of these, these clubs. Yes, because with that structure, with those coaching uh, you know, opportunities, and also combined with a new sense of Estonian identity and pride, Aside from and different from being part of the Russian Empire, there was it was starting to become a time when being Estonian was something to be proud of, as opposed to essentially being a Russian imperial 
colony, and that made many young men of the time want to step out as the athletic hero to represent their homeland. And we see that a lot with you know, a lot of uh, you know, colonies or even like territories like Guam and Puerto Rico, where it is very important for combat athletes, wrestlers, uh, boxers, you know, I'm, you know, track and field, other Olympic things yep. where they want to step out of the shadow of being this essentially colonized culture and say, I'm the best in the world and I represent my culture. Not necessarily the, uh, the government that uh, rules my island, rules my country, but my people and their history and I am the fucking hero. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sport gives people that are bold enough to chase that dragon the opportunity to become that hero for your for your people and your homeland and your culture and yeah and when you talk about representing a a place and representing the culture of a place that's why certain sports are associated with certain places like when you think about you know sprinting in Jamaica or you think about uh, I could think about like um, high dive and China and the precision there there's certain sports that you associate with certain cultural places because that sport is a microcosm of what makes that culture special. And even in the context of kind of a special time with special, you know, training styles and athletics and just the the whole concept of being a trained professional athlete outside of a circus setting, this was somebody who was special. And after graduating from Peter's Modern School in Tallinn in 1894, he headed off to St. Petersburg to train wrestling and weightlifting under Polish doctor Władysław Krajewski, who you may remember from our episode on George Hackenschmidt. He was a, a guru, if you will. He was somebody who was the, the, the top guy you wanted to go train with. He's the guy who had connections to everybody. He's the guy who got Jörg Hackenschmidt a position uh, as like the bodyguard of the czar when he had to go do his you know, mandatory military service. So this is the guy you wanted to impress. You wanted him to be you know, your, your mentor. He's the guy who would take you to the next level and turn you into a professional as opposed to that carny level or amateur. He was the gateway. He was impressed. He saw a star, a success, the future of whatever when he saw him. Yeah, and it, it shows the desire to be great in sport and in athletic context by seeking out one of the greatest, you know, teachers and one of the greatest people to learn from as a mentor in the culture at the time. So it shows, you know, by anytime somebody leaves where they grew up to chase their dreams, it, they're, they're not fucking around. And especially when they go to one of the highest levels of learning in that particular discipline or thing, it shows that they are absolutely committing their life to the pursuit of that, that art or that, you know, that craft. And there in St. Petersburg, under the, the, the tutelage of Dr. Krajewski, he wrestled competitively. He put on weightlifting demonstrations with fellow strongman Gustav Biosberg and became popular enough to be a truly professional athlete and was the first Estonian to set world records in weightlifting. Because you keep in mind, he was like half a generation before Hackenschmidt. Before, yeah. before Hackenschmidt came along and blew everybody away, this is the guy who was 
you know, you know, a few years uh, ahead of that. So he's the guy who's this, you know, this, you know, chip on his shoulder Estonian. He gets under the tutelage of the right people. His discipline, his drive, his natural ability. He's the guy who got to go out and blaze that trail and be a truly professional athlete, but not in a, once again, I keep referring to this as not in the circus sense because he was the guy who took it to almost a scientific level. He's the guy who wasn't yeah. just, I can pick up a rock or this weird, you know, one of those like, you know, square, you know, fucking weights with a handle on it over his head or, you know, like the, what you're picturing for like a carnival strongman. He was a guy who was turning this almost into a combination even though it had some freak show connotations and vibes, it was almost like the uh, you know like like a scientific lecture at the same time, showing what the human body can be developed into, both performance and aesthetic wise. So he ran, he walked, so that Hackenschmidt could run. He set the he set the bar and blazed the trail to open up the gateway for Hackenschmidt to do what he did. Very much, he was the first Estonian wrestler slash weightlifter to really take that step into the proper Russian Empire and impress the right people that got him into those you know big tournaments. You yeah. know, so it's not just wrestling in a gym; it's wrestling in a a theater or a proper stadium where it's it's legitimate athletics as opposed to. You know, just uh, you know, tough guys proving they're tough guys, or you know, like I said, the carnival style that uh, had uh, dominated uh, you know Europe even even at that time, and he did very very well, and you know, and after you know many tournaments, many matches in Europe, he needed new worlds to conquer. So Lurich and fellow Estonian wrestler Alexander Aberg headed to America in 1913 to tour and of course make as much money as possible. Aberg is another huge legend out of Estonia. He, Lurich, and Hackenschmidt are the big three of Estonian wrestling legends. And from 1913 to 1917, both men competed in freestyle and Greco-Roman matches across the country. And keep in mind that Greco-Roman had very much faded in popularity in the United States at that time, and the higher-paced catch and freestyle wrestling had taken over. And if your toolbox doesn't contain below-the-waist attacks and submissions, you're in for a long night or potentially a very short one. And you may wonder why I just I didn't really mention the the match with uh, Hackenschmidt. You can go back and listen to that episode and hear that story yeah. because it was pretty much him schooling a, a young wrestler that uh, didn't didn't really amount to much at the time, and off he went into the world not knowing what that young man would accomplish later on down the road. Yeah, it was a that that situation was a classic Jordan and Kobe scenario where they they didn't have the opportunity to truly meet up in their prime, but it was maybe a little bit more because he was ducking him. But Chongo digresses. He he got the win on a young goat, and he was able to build a career off it, man. Yes, because it was a situation where he did beat a young, untrained, but very athletic, very uh, you know determined. Hackenschmidt, and he did kind of be a little bit of a mentor to him before, uh, you know, taking off from Estonia. But it's important to, you know, kind of do stop and acknowledge the fact that for the rest of his life, for the rest of his career, no matter what Hackenschmidt did, he was always going to, you know, you know, 
put himself out there as the guy who beat Hackenschmidt. And he would say, I would beat him again. And then, you know, Hackenschmidt would try to set up a rematch. He would sometimes even agree to it and then, you know, disappear out of London of, under cover of night and the next city over be like, I'm the guy who beat Hackenschmidt. Because, you know what, if you, if you chalk up that win, you can, uh, you know, ride that sometimes forever. That's so amazing. And it's also a perfect example of how things that become normalized in pro wrestling today as just standard work were actually had a genesis in reality. He was really ducking this motherfucker, calling him out, and then ducking when the, when the challenge was accepted and leaving town on the cover of night. That's some heel shit. That's good shit, man. I love it because he, he kept the legacy going with it. It would be like, it's so, it's so proto, you know, what we would consider standard heel playbook, right? Like, I'll fight you, just not tonight, right? Classic. And once they got to America and they were touring, they of course built themselves up as these legends of the old world, uh, almost to the, the point of, of, of making themselves unrealistic gods of wrestling. And for the most part, Lorich and Aberg would do the typical theater act, an exhibition match against one another, perform feats of strength and take on an audience member in a challenge match. And I did find some old footage of, uh, of Lorich. It was very much exhibition style. And it almost feels like a, uh, uh, you know, it's an old silent film from the early 1900s, but it does just show how athletic this man was, even if it's not a, uh, you know, a, a real match. But real matches and maybe not so real matches did lie ahead for him. Case in point, on January 20th, 1913, he defeated Dr. Benjamin Roller in a two out of three match at the Globe Theater in Chicago. Benjamin Roller, another uh, you know big name from that time, he was a major training partner of George Hackenschmidt. He was uh, you know he was a legitimate contender, and according to the Joplin Daily Globe on you know, January 25th, 1913, Roller was taunting Lurich, rubbing his face or rubbing his hand in his face, kind of giving the pie face, and being a bit of a dirty prick. Quote. The match was spectacular in the extreme, filled with attempts at headstands, flying falls, and toe locks, but lacked the spice and ginger of a real contest between two desperate gladiators, which seems like a roundabout way to say that it was a HIPPODROME! But fixed or not, Lurich won the first fall in 22 minutes, 25 seconds, and the second in 13 minutes and two seconds, both via a chancery hold, which is you know more or less a front face lock with a little bit of a, a little bit of spice on it to uh, you know make your uh, you know make make the chin uh, go places you don't want it to go. Yeah, standing guillotine front face lock. It's a it's a very effective hold, especially when you're dealing with someone that doesn't know how to defend a choke. But it, it always makes me wonder, old chap, if it was, if it was, the fix was in, if it wasn't on the up and up, as they say, why would they do these two out of three falls and go so damn long? 22 minutes and change for the opening and fall? Nay, I say. Well, you keep you have to keep in mind these are those uh, days uh, still where the uh, you know these Greco-Roman athletes, even the the catch wrestling guys, these are guys who are used to uh, you know wrestling uh, you know very long matches. It's like we talked about on the Farmer Burns episode. These are guys who would be like, oh, the first fall was forty-five minutes, the second was you know uh, was fifty <sighs> minutes, and this kind of I feel like it falls in that 
if it was a hippodrome, if it was a worked match, which I'm sure it was, where you bring in the the like you know legendary you know yeah, Eastern totally. European and and but everybody wants to put money on the American they know and uh, and and believe in, and then hey you know what whoopsie doodles he loses and then you know Benjamin Roller has you know 500 bucks bet on the other guy by a by a proxy, but it's that amount of time where people are not going to complain about having wasted their ticket money and uh, you know t- tucks putting on time to come down yeah, and watch totally. the match so it gives them the main event without it being so over long that it uh, you know it, it breaks down their bodies and also you know uh, makes the audience feel a little restless and maybe that's also the point where they could still work a match while making it look like a shoot without it falling apart yeah, I mean, it sounded it sounded like it got a pretty good review. Maybe a little a little bit on the flippy shit side, based on what the reporter had to say. But you know, well, you know how these darn kids are these days with their high spots and their uh, you know fancy moves. Oh boy, these kids just can't can't work a match to make it look real. Front headlocks, you're exposing the business. You're destroying destroying the game. And another reason why it may have been uh, a, you know, a worked match, the other uh, reason behind it, is Roller may have just done a worked match to set up a match to make him look good, to make him look like a legitimate contender, even though he you know, it wasn't necessarily the uh, you know, you know, used to the, the submissions or the below the belt attacks of the catch wrestling style yeah. at the time. However, he has now beat the, uh, the one of the top local American catch-style contenders, and that's what got him a match against Frank Gotch on April 1st, 1913 in Kansas City. And according to the Barton County Democrat from Great Bend, it's a Great Bend, Kansas paper, they hyped Lurich as the Russian who defeated Hackenschmidt and Zabisco. This is, you know, this is, you know, a guy who is who has beat the names that people actually know. That he's, you know, now been built up by beating Roller as a legitimate contender. Because totally. keep in mind, it's something we talked a lot about when we discussed Frank Gotch. One of the hardest things to do at a certain point was to make somebody look like a legitimate contender so they could actually make money off of it because he was getting into that kind of Mike Tyson uh, place where you know he's knocked the uh, the guy out before you even uh, you know have a chance to eat a handful of popcorn and at a certain point you stop paying sixty dollars on a pay per view to see that. Yes, take notes, kiddies. What do we have here? Another example of something that has become so standard in the modern pro wrestling, you know, just the way that it's done. This is how you build a heel. This is how you build a foreign menace. You have a, a, a long-standing champion that we're having trouble getting an opponent that, that's viable. We need to build somebody up. We bring this guy in, he, we put him over, we get him over against top guys, and bada bing, bada boom, what do we got? We got Gotch. We got a, a big foreign menace built up, and we got we got a hippodrome and a payday on our hands, my man. And it was done very, very well because keep in mind this is also post Gotch Hackenschmidt. This is post kind of the uh, you know public collapse of pro wrestling as a big legitimate you know front page news sporting event and a lot of people thought that Hackenschmidt Gotch was a worked match even though a worked match would have been uh, you know entertaining uh, if, if, if you catch my drift so they had a hard time 
doing things that would actually draw good money. And they did a great job of having him beat a respected uh, local catch wrestler, built him up as this you know, foreign menace who you know, defeated Hackenschmidt as well. So they built him up very well. And, you know, this probably wouldn't have done business in Chicago, but it did very good business in Kansas. However, I feel like this probably was a shoot match. This was not a worked in any, any goddamn way because Lurich had very little to offer against Gotch. Gotch won in two straight falls, the first in 18 minutes, 10 seconds, and the second in five minutes, 32 seconds, both via Gotch's famous toehold submission. I, I, I wonder if Gotch said to him, we're not in Kansas anymore. I guess that was pre-Wizard pre of Oz, no, no rainbow to go over, but yeah, you just, you just got built up and squashed, and they wonder why Gotch couldn't keep a program together. You don't squash your heel in the open, man. The money's in the rematch. And I feel like he probably even maybe carried him, uh, you know, Gotch probably carried him a little bit for that long first fall. Yeah, 18 minutes and change? Yeah, because yeah. 18 minutes, as somebody as good as the you know, lower um, body, uh, you know, takedown attacks that Gotch was, uh, somebody who was that good with submissions, especially that toehold, against somebody who more or less was a Greco-Roman weightlifter. So he had no good, he, this is a guy who may have never even faced a legitimate toehold uh, attack or, you know, leg attack, uh, let alone from the best in the goddamn world. And let me tell you something, as somebody who, uh, you know, trained under, you know, shoot style rules, uh, you know, the, the, the Japanese style, like, uh, you know, from Bart Vale, uh, you know, Pancrase, uh, you know, style rules. If you don't know how to defend against a toehold, and somebody slaps one of those on you, you know you're done goddamn immediately. See also, you know, Strangler Lewis versus Sirakichi Matsuda, or if you feel like, uh, you know, wincing, uh, YouTube search, John Lober toehold. Uh, it's one It's one of those holds, like, describe, tell me why a toehold is so goddamn dangerous. Because the foot isn't supposed to rotate like a helicopter propeller, and that's what you do with a toehold. You get it locked in around, around the bottom of the calf like it's the neck on a rear naked choke and you're able to rotate the foot and just you put so much damage it tears the knee up it actually does much more damage to your knee and all your cruciate limit ligaments in your knee and all the rotational damage it's just terrible you get spiral fractures it is about as devastating of a submission in terms of the type of damage and recovery that it takes to come back from that as anything and also we're talking about a greco-roman specialist greco-roman is an upper body style of grappling and style of wrestling versus not only someone that's going to be trying to take down and utilize the legs there but who specializes in a leg submission it's just a bad matchup and to think that they went you know 18 minutes which is longer than a standard ufc fight uh, yeah, you're probably right. He might have carried. He might have carried the young boy a little bit. Yeah, I feel like one of two things happened. It either was a, you know, a situation where Gotch was just like, I'm gonna fucking put this guy away however I want, but yeah. let's make sure people get their money's worth because once again, he came off of those very quick, very strange Hackenschmidt matches where people were fucking pissed. So he wanted to make sure people got their money's worth. That's possibility number one. Yeah. which I think is most likely, or it was the fact that Lorich outweighed him considerably and was a 
freakish weightlifting monster. So he was just so goddamn strong. It took a while for him to, you know, wear him down and get him down. You know, it's like if you watch those old, like, you know, you know, Gracie Jiu Jitsu in totally. action or, or, you know, those early UFCs where there was no weight limits. It's like you could have a very skilled 185 pounder, but it'll still take him quite a while to wear down a much less skilled 250 pound you know, muscle boy, because even because even if you don't know lower you know body takedowns and attacks, a Greco-Roman man has balance. A Greco-Roman man knows how to you know keep things on his feet, but it's just a different level of toolbox. So as soon as his stamina starts to disappear, so is his defense. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting stylistic matchup, especially when the Greco guy is is physically larger and stronger. It's more like a tree going against like a snake. It takes a while to cut that tree down. You're going after his legs and he's big and he's stout and he's rooted. The leg lock attempt for a smaller guy and getting under him and finally getting an advantage where you can get him off of his base, that does take some time when you're going up against because, man, Greco is about being strong. That's like the utilization of that style. And so when you have a strength advantage as a Greco guy, it's a really formidable thing that you have to overcome before you can start implementing your game on them. It just made me think of a, uh, a part in uh, Jonathan Snowden's fantastic Ken Shamrock uh, you know, biography, uh, The World's Most Dangerous Man. Everybody should read it. It is, it is something uh, where I, they were talking about how I think it was in Pancrase they brought in a big American Greco-Roman guy who was like you know, top level, unbeaten, huge ego. And I forgot what the circumstances were that led to it, but they were like, okay, well, we'll do this based on, uh, you know, we'll just have kind of like a little shoot match right now. And Ken took him down immediately with a double leg. And then the guy's like, whoa, whoa, I wasn't ready. And then boom, and again, and again, and again, where the guy finally had to admit, I don't have defense against a, you know, not in like, you know, Ken Shamrock, as good as he was, was not a world-class, yeah. you know, freestyle wrestler. He was just good enough and freakishly strong enough and trained with the right people to have the tools to take a Greco-Roman guy's feet out from under him if that Greco-Roman guy had not trained for it. So again, it's like you, you fight the way you train under the rules you train for, and then when you cross over, things can go wrong. It's like a boxer competing in kickboxing or a kickboxer yep. with no grappling competing in MMA. And you're in there with gotch, man. I mean, let's not, you know, uh, that kind of trumps all of this other stuff. You're in there with one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And just the fact that he was able to last that long is really remarkable. Yeah, probably. Hopefully you've listened to our Gotch Hackenschmidt episodes where Gotch was a man who was so naturally talented, was trained by the best trainer that was available on possibly on earth in catch wrestling at that time. And it got to the point where in order to even make things interesting, he had to do dumb shit and weird cons and like do a lot of showbiz razzle dazzle just so people would be interested in the matches because he was just literally steamrolling everybody. He was like that, you know, it's like when you watch a guy like Anderson Silva in his prime or George St. Pierre, that, yeah. where, you know, the worst case scenario for them is they get a little bored and complacent and they still win a five-round decision. Yeah, or they, they get knocked out playing with their food and we don't ever see them truly lose based on the merit of their skill. We see them lose based on the merit of them getting bored. 
Yep, and I feel like that what saved uh, you know uh, Gotch from that many many times is the fact that he was a carny at heart, oh, despite yeah. being the most dangerous man on two legs. But he was a carny enough to be like, okay, I'm getting bored, or this isn't working. Hey, I have a weird money making scheme, and it's like quasi criminal. Let's do this. Let me go do uh, you know Alaska under a fake name. Let's uh, have me hit my head on a turnbuckle, going for uh, you know a shoot or whatever to set up a rematch against somebody I can beat no matter what, just to keep the game interesting enough that we're gonna make a lot of money next time around. So, so knowing that about the man, why do you think he he kind of steamrolled? His, his chance to have built up a viable foreign menace heel for himself. Why do you think he, he, took, he took it that way in this first encounter? Well, here he is with, uh, you know, Jord Lurich. They built him up enough with that, to, you know, off of his tour. You know, uh, Lurich was an amazing self-promoter. I yeah. mean, beyond the fucking, uh, you know, fathoming of, of, of even like your best boxer MMA guy today. And he built up himself up very well in the papers, in the press. People knew who he was. He was you know, being written about in the sports pages coast to coast. And then he beats, you know, Benjamin Roller, which I feel once again is like was like a setup to build it up for Gotch. Totally. And Gotch, once again, he was coming off those very damaging matches with uh, you know, with Hackenschmidt. He needed things to look more legitimate yeah. in order to build up, you know, decent paydays. And also at this point, Gotch had been kind of toying with retirement or he would retire and then kind of come back for, for paydays. More, it seemed, out of uh, you know boredom or not knowing else what to do with himself. But this is a man who is more business savvy than you know any other wrestler of his era. You know, and maybe even uh, you know like like even by today's standards, he would he would be that guy who would be like, cool. Well, I'm the champion, but unless I get uh, you know 10% of the pay per view and I get my own sponsors and I do this, otherwise I'm going home because you know. I don't really, I don't really need the money at this point. He was, he was that level of guy. He was just that fucking brilliant of an athlete and that brilliant of an businessman and a uh, you know self promoter and a guy to build things up. Even though they might have been an easy day at the office, he still made it look like a clash of titans, and it really did pay off because even though it wasn't much of a contest. The match drew 11,000 people. That's right, wow. 11,000 fucking people and a $20,000 gate, of which Gotch received 60%. As the paper put it, he is well paid for the little exercise indulged in. Like, the paper it's acknowledged, like, that guy just cleaned the fuck up financially. He didn't, uh, you know, have a fuck, he wasn't in danger at all. Holy shit, what a, uh, you know, what what an easy payday at uh, at that scale, and that was all by making Lurich look ten times more dangerous than he even was. And I don't want to take anything away from Lurich because Lurich was a legitimate, oh yeah, world class bad man, dude. But he was just out of his element rules wise, and walked into a you know the wood chipper that was the most uh, you know dangerous grappler on earth at the time. But it speaks volumes that he was even selected to be the guy in the spot. He was brought in as this foreign menace at a very, what it seems like, delicate time as Gotch is trying to re, re, rehab his image and reestablish professional wrestling as, as a premier event to draw what they drew. That's fantastic, man. Yep, and, and like I said, Lorich was 
a genius at self-promoting. As you can see with, because uh, Lurich also tried to put together a big money match against Stanislaw Zabisco in America. Having lost to Zabisco in 1906 in the finals of a Parisian tournament after 52 minutes of Greco-Roman wrestling, and then going one and four against Stanislaus in that year, and had gone to a draw with the imposing pole four goddamn times in 1907, and another draw in 1912, but listen to the way he, he talked about it. On an uh, interview with the Chicago Daily Examiner, February 2nd, uh, 1913. I want to force Zabisco into a match. I don't care what his opinion is of me. The fact remains that I beat him decisively, not once or twice, but on several occasions. I am sure that I could beat him again. If I fail, I will return to Europe on the next boat. This is a man who lost or drew to this man every single fuck, almost every single fucking time. But now he's the guy who is in the States being interviewed, talking himself up. And what is anybody going to do? fucking look it up on the internet. It's 1913. You can't fact check shit, especially in wrestling where it's just the sports guy going, cool, man. Well, I got to get this to, uh, you know, the fucking press. I'm not going to wire, you know, the fucking, uh, you know, Istanbul to find out how a tournament went four fucking years ago. It's just you take it at face value. You print the quote in the interview. And now Lurich is now known to the man reading the, uh, the the sports page as the guy who beat Zabisco, the man who was in the same conversation as Gotch and Hackenschmidt. So he has now leapfrogged this man in the public eye the same way he did by bragging about beating Hackenschmidt. He knew how to sell himself and how to turn himself into a draw that might not have matched his ability, but that's selling tickets. That's how it works. Your, 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 your mouth sells more tickets sometimes than, uh, you know, what you can do in the ring. Oh, yeah, it's bloody brilliant, man, because whether or not Zabisco engages with him and accepts any kind of challenge and has a match with him or not, he is already sort of putting himself in a position to receive the cachet of having beaten him, which is interesting to me because when you described it before you explained how he presented it, in my head it was like, okay, he's catching him. First he was losing, then it became a series of draws. That would have been a tremendous sell by itself. Like, I've been chasing this elk, this bigger lion, this more established lion my whole career. He beat me a bunch of times. Then we had a bunch of draws, but I got closer, I got closer. And now I'm gonna overtake him and that's why he's ducking me. And that's where I thought he was gonna go with it. But the fact that he completely flipped it just says that he has a true heart of a worker, bro. That is some, High-level bullshit. Oh, yeah. It, it, it is so fucking cardi that I, I can't help but almost swoon reading oh, about it. Oh, totally. Because Zabisco was becoming a big deal at the time because at this time, several papers, including the you know, February 3rd, 2013, Newcastle News advertised the proposed match for the World Championship because Zabisco claimed the title pretty much out of thin air because Gotch wouldn't come out of retirement to face him or really anybody. Lorich was Gotch's last match. That was his last wow. big, big match before he hurt himself and then got sick and then, you know, unfortunately died very young. But Lorich was his last match, his last big win. He retired as champion. He didn't drop the belt to anybody, but he also wasn't officially saying he was retired. So Zabisco just went in typical wrestling uh, time, you know, of the time, goes, well, I'm the toughest guy around. I'm the guy who was in that conversation. I am the world champion. Somebody has to beat me to, uh, to say otherwise. And 
A match was attempted to be made in Chicago, but the mayor was still smarting over the Gotch Hackenschmidt fiasco, and Mayor Harrison referred to the Labor Day swindle when refusing to let it happen, according to the Cincinnati Commerce Tribune of February 7th, 1913. Again, this was such a big fucking deal, the Hackenschmidt Gotch thing, and everybody thought it was a swindle, everybody thought it was a work, there were so many angles to it, that the mayor of Chicago said, Fuck no, we're not letting some big wrestling match happen here ever again. And now I want a Labor Day Swindle t-shirt, brother. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, and and I don't know why they would choose Chicago, though. That's the one thing that, that didn't make sense to me. If that was where, you know, the, the raw nerve was and they felt unfriendly to pro wrestling because they felt they got embarrassed or whatever, I don't know why you would push for that location, but... You know, hey, maybe that's going to help draw. Well, because you know, Chicago had been a big wrestling city, as we as we learned in the you know Evan Strangler Lewis oh, yeah. uh, episode in the you know Gotch Hackenschmidt things, like or even in the uh, you know the Farmer Burns days. Chicago was a wrestling town. People came out to support things, but like I said, the 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 city felt so burned. They felt that there was such a black eye that they could just never have wrestling at that level there again. Just to save people from being disappointed, angry, tourism dollars, uh, fucking betting money. There was just so many weird little angles and anger that they were just like, fuck you, we're never doing this again. But finally, I will say this, this is where things get so weird, because finally Lurich and Stanislaw Zabisco had their match, and this is going to be like a weird callback as we get a little deeper into the story, because according to the Chicago Examiner, May 29th, um, you know, 1913, Lurich defeated Zabisco by forfeit when Zabisco collapsed in the ring after 16 minutes and couldn't continue. He claimed he had a pre-existing injury health issue, but still wanted to compete, or as the article headline read, Zabisco faints in match with Lurich. So they actually finally had this match, and just out of, you know, I guess like Zabisco came in like with his head wrapped in fucking bandages, which screams work to me. And then halfway through, you know, the fall, he just like falls over and then can't, can't compete. They pulled the Shawn Michaels lost my smile. Like that's crazy. He just passed out and fucking fainted in the middle of the match. After I, I smell a hippodrome, old chap. Yeah, it, it does. It does really seem strange that, you know, it, it's, and, and it'll even seem weirder as this uh, story progresses. Um, also in 1913, this I really found interesting. He had a series of matches against Czech wrestler Gustav Fristensky, going three and four against the Czech strongman and grappler. Fistensky is another one of those European wrestlers from that period whose life could be a movie. I had never heard of this guy until I, I looked him up after looking at these matches. You know, because he, he had this crazy story from a, uh, he, he was a, a, a blacksmith apprentice and one of the other apprentices like threw him a white hot uh, horseshoe and it like melted his hand so bad he, <sighs> you know, he and think about like that in like the late 1800s, early 1900s level of medical care that fucks you up. Oh for, my God. For fucking like probably a year, uh, he then comes back and then became a butcher, and then he became a wrestler who competed from his teens to the age of seventy, and joined the Czech resistance to fight the Nazis while in his fifties. It's a completely bananas story. I, I I will have to look at this guy further, but it's just one of those things you're like, oh, who's this guy? He wrestled four times. Holy shit, that's the craziest life story I've ever fucking heard. Oh my god. 
Yeah, that is a bad motherfucker. Seriously. I, I, I can't even... So, now, was the, what was the intent of this little program? Was it to build up a second foreign menace? What do you think was the, was the reasoning behind this? They were trying to get another guy over from the Eastern Bloc or what? This is one where I legitimately wonder if it was shoot or, uh, or worked matches. Yeah. Because, you know, going three and four against this, you know, Czech and like every, you know, re-emerging European culture where like had a sense of national pride. So I don't know how well they would have like worked together, if you will. Um, and also just this guy seems like the sort of guy who didn't want to work a match unless it was like top level and I don't feel like these were, but who the fuck knows, I wasn't there, there's not good documentation on it, who can say? This is where we're going to put a little bit of a pit in it because now he's about to enter the 1915 International Tournament at the Manhattan Opera House. One of the craziest stories uh, I, I've ever come across. It'll get its own episode because a lot of weird shit happened, but we're going to focus on him and focus on what happened when he left America, why he left America, and what happened to him when he came back to Europe. But that's for next time. We're going to do a two-parter out of this bad boy. So I just want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for continuing to listen. I want to thank you for liking us on Facebook because you better have done that. And same thing with following us on Twitter and on Instagram. And we're going to continue this deep dive of Jord Lurich next time. Chango, what do you think about this guy so far? I think this is some crazy shit, and you just set up an amazing cliffhanger. Because what goes down in 1915 is maybe the most ridiculous combination of stories that evolved the world of pro wrestling into what we know today for the next hundred years. What happens in this what his we're just we're not going to get into the whole thing we're just going to touch his his aspect of it but it's like some crazy oceans 11 shit and i'm so pumped because these guys are the real underpinnings of what made this shit crazy when you have a guy who came across the world and defined expectations for his whole country and overcome what Lurich overcame to even become the guy in the ring, the foreign menace to face Gotch. And we're only at the at the first half, brother. This is going to be tight. And as a uh, absolute lover of bullshit con artists, he also had that going for him too in true Carney fashion. Oh, yeah. But we're going to get back to this next time. Thanks for being here with us. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you next time for part two. Yes, cut print martini. Mm -hmm.